so we, we've lost our voice in international affairs very largely. So people listen to us on Ukraine, um, I'm glad to say, uh, but that's about it. And um, and we have this um, terribly depressed national policy, which feels that politicians are no longer to be trusted. Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Julia Ahn, and today I'm joined by a new co-host, Seth Choi. Hi, I'm Seth Choi. I'm an international studies major at Hopkins. I was a longtime listener of Popa before I came to Hopkins. I'm so excited to join as a host. British Prime Minister Liz Truss resigned October 20th after only six weeks in office after policies caused an economic crisis. Rishi Sunak, who succeeded Truss in October, has been tasked with stabilizing the economy and the Conservative Party's standing. Nick Whitney joins us on the podcast to discuss the premiership of Liz Truss. Nick Whitney is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He has previously served as the first chief executive of the European Defense Agency in Brussels. Mr. Whitney has also had experience in British government service with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the Ministry of Defense. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Nick, thank you for joining us today. Uh, My first question is, could you give our listeners some background on Liz Truss and how she rose to power in British politics? Um, Seth, sure. And excuse me. Thank you for for inviting me along. Um, Yeah, she's an interesting character, Truss. Um, Well, anybody who in the space of under two months manages to blow up the British economy is, uh, I guess, bound to be interesting. Um, you might think that she was monumentally stupid, and I suppose in a sense she was, but um, she's she's clever enough. I mean, she went to Oxford University and read politics, philosophy and economics there, which is the classic entry into, uh, into British political life, actually. Um, she then worked in, in, in business. She worked for Shell. She worked for Cable and Wireless, I think, as an economist, um, before she... Uh, uh, pitched into uh, Tory party politics, first at the local level and subsequently um, got herself a a nice safe seat in uh, conservative uh, Norfolk um, before making it into parliament in 2010. Um, So she's bright enough. Um, But I think the key to understanding her is that she's a serial convert. as a child, she was taken by her extremely left-wing parents on uh, anti-nuclear demonstrations. When she went to Oxford, she was a Liberal Democrat, which is the Centre Party. Uh, indeed, she was the president of the Oxford Liberal Democrats, and at that stage was a vehement anti-monarchist. Um, and then she converted, when she left Oxford, to the Tory Party. And not just to the Tory Party, but to the... Um, but to the right wing of the Tory party. She fell in with a bunch of um, of hard right economists who reckoned that uh, the trouble with Britain was that uh, the state was too big, that uh, um, what was needed for British revival was a low regulation, low cost economy. Um, and that was the sense that she subsequently stuck with. You would expect on that basis that she would have been a Brexiteer because um, uh, the hard right on Brexit was all about um, cutting EU red tape, restoring national sovereignty and uh, freeing up business to um, 
unleashing the great potential of the British people, which had obviously been um, held back by the bureaucracy of Brussels. Um, But she wasn't a Brexiteer. She campaigned in the 2016 election for Remain. Um, And as soon as the election was finished, she immediately converted, yet again, to the Brexiteer cause and has been vehement in its support ever since. No doubt it was necessary if she was going to get herself reappointed to the cabinet by Theresa May, which happened in 2017, Justice Secretary, um, a job at the Treasury. And then finally, under Johnson, as International Trade Secretary, where uh, Truss's whole shtick was that... Um, we, all this nonsense about needing to trade with the EU and the single market and the customs union and all that was absolutely unnecessary because global Britain would now go buccaneering forth and uh, trade around the world and we'd be much richer as a nation as a, as a consequence. And she signed a complete blizzard of trade deals um, around the world, although almost all of them were simply rollovers of the trade deals that we'd enjoyed as members of the EU, but so copy and pasted into bilateral trade deals. But she was vehement on on Brexit and has remained vehement on Brexit. And then ultimately, as Johnson's foreign secretary, she, um, she was the one who sponsored the, I'm sorry, I do have to say this, a completely disgraceful bill um, to allow Britain to uh, break the... Uh, agreement with the EU, the withdrawal agreement with the EU, and therefore disapply the famous Northern Ireland Protocol, which is such a bone of contention now. So by the time she came to be um, uh, stand for election as um, uh, to take over as Tory leader and then prime minister from the disgraced Boris Johnson, um, she was the darling of the, of the hard right, the darling of the Brexiteers, the darling of um, the Conservative Party members, who typically are to the right of um, the Parliamentary Party, old, rich, white, living in the southeast, and uh, generally what you might expect from a, of a classic British Conservative. So that's been her that's been her trajectory and career, and um, she came to power with with the promises that she would um, implement a true Conservative agenda. Um, and, and of course, vehemently um, channeling Margaret Thatcher, who is remains the iconic figure for the right wing of the Tory party. Um, uh, during her campaign, she uh, she she channeled Thatcher with her photo ops. She was very keen on her photo ops, whether it was riding in a tank in Europe or or showing her gentler side by cuddling a calf, which was also a Thatcher trope. Or indeed, turning up for debates in a great, um, in sort of cosplaying Thatcher with um, great uh, bows at her neck. So I think they're called pussy bows, which was the Thatcher. So that's um, that's the mystery of of Truss. Um, not so much mystery. She was a uh, a politician who was determined to um, to rise to power on the right of the party and did a did a great job of that. Um, and uh, but why she why a, a clever woman um, was prepared to go all in on this extraordinary um, attempt to apply shock therapy to the British economy um, with such disastrous results, I can only put down to the fact that she was, she's was she been a serial convert. And yet again, in the latter stages of her career, she thought she'd um, 
discovered the way forward um, with all the zeal of a, and, and commitment of a convert. convert um, she got the answers. There were these simple truths, and now she was going to implement them. Thank you. I think you've already talked about this a little bit, but our next question um, is just a little bit more on like the tail end of what you were saying. And I was wondering if you could give us just a little bit more background. So the question is, uh, following Boris Johnson's resignation in September, uh, Trust ran on a platform of massive tax cuts for the wealthy and a rollback of corporate taxes. Why did she choose to campaign on these platforms and why was it successful? Well, I think she chose to campaign on those platforms for two reasons. One, that um, this actually fitted in with everything she'd been saying for uh, for the last decade, shall we say. In 2012, she um, published a, a notorious book, uh, co-authored a notorious book called Britannia Unchained, which is the sort of Bible of um, what's needed for Britain to become um, small state, free enterprise, low tax, low regulation, trickle-down um, benefits for everybody in the country and how to galvanise growth and restore the economy of Britain, um, which included the rather um, uh, one quotation which came back to haunt her rather in um, at various stages of her subsequent career last in the last decade, which was putting down Britain's persistent productivity problems to the fact that the British are amongst the worst idlers in the world, um, which may or may not be true, um, but is not a sort of popular thing to say if it gets quoted back at you. Um, anyway, she um, she st- stood on this hard right economic platform because she believed it um, and because it was the surefire way to success with the electorate. Um the Tories uh, choose their leaders nowadays in a two-stage process. One is a vote amongst the uh, members of parliament, the Tory members of parliament, and trust never came to the top of that ballot. But it didn't matter because um, you only had to come within the first two in that ballot, and then the first two would be put to uh, for to a vote of the of the members of the Tory party, I think something like 180,000 members in the country. Um, and the two months that were consumed were involved hustings and tours around different constituency associations and speeches by her and speeches by Rishi Sunak. And she simply told the uh, the membership of the Tory party exactly what they wanted to hear, which was that, um, that taxes would be cut and that regulation would be reduced and that Brexit would be pressed ahead with in all its aspects um, and that uh, the fiscal position of, of Britain would be restored by making sure that um, you know wasteful public services were not given unnecessary sums of money so there'd be a tight grip on public spending. And she made all these promises, and uh, sure enough, the Tory party faithful loved them, and uh, she became our prime minister. And so having run on these platforms and having become prime minister, what policies did she enact afterwards And um, in order to deliver on those key campaign promises? For one, I know listeners are probably aware of the mini-budget, um, if you could speak a little bit about that, and also if there are any other key policies that were enacted. Well, she was in power for um, a little less than two months, 
um, first couple of weeks of which were um, not able to be used because um, the country was in mourning for Queen Elizabeth II. It has been the most extraordinary period in British public life the last half year. Um, if I can sort of digress just for a moment, there was one splendid letter to a newspaper which said um, something like, uh, my son has lived under two monarchs, three prime ministers, and four chancellors of the exchequer, that's finance ministers. He is four months old. Uh, so it's been all change. So she really didn't have time to do much. Um, she reassured people that um, as soon as she could, she'd get on with ensuring that the um, the Rwanda policy on, on uh, asylum seekers would be followed through as rapidly as possible. That's the idea that when people tip up on British beaches, uh, having crossed the channel in rubber dinghies, um, they should be immediately be whipped off to Rwanda, not for processing by British officials to see if they have a legitimate asylum case, but absolutely for they'd be dumped in Rwanda. Uh, and the Rwandans have received a large sum of money from us and have made promises about um, they would uh, give asylum to anyone who needs asylum. And uh, anyway, it wouldn't be our problem anymore. So that was a policy beloved of the right wing of the Tory party. And she said she'd do that. Um, what else? Um, it was nearly all economics. And it was coming up to what you rightly call the mini budget, which um, um, was actually presented by her colleague and soulmate, joint author of that book I referred to from 2012, um, Kwasi Kwarteng, whom she'd appointed as her chancellor. Um, and it was appointed, it was presented, I think, on the 23rd of September. So it was only a couple of weeks after she'd really got her knees under the desk and he'd got his knees under the desk. And it did what she, you know, you can give her credit. She did exactly what she said she'd do. She cut taxes massively. Um, billions and billions of, of pounds of tax cuts weighted on the whole towards the rich, um, including the abolition, which no one had expected and hadn't been promised before, but was thrown in as a sort of sweetener. The abolition of the top rate of tax uh, that used to kick in, well, still does kick in actually now, at uh, 45% um, for those with incomes of over 150,000. So that's the, you know, the seriously rich um, uh, top layer of, of British earning capacity. And that's, that rate was abolished so that they'd carry, they'd carry on, rich people carry on paying a maximum of 40% for as long as forever. Um, so she cut taxes and uh, also, again, a symbolic move, but nonetheless a, an interesting one, um, removed what had been, whilst we were in the EU, a cap on the size of bankers' bonuses. That was something that had been introduced by the EU and therefore by Britain uh, in the aftermath of the 2008 crash. Um, and I think bankers had found ways around the cap on bonuses to ensure they were properly remunerated. Um, but uh, they, she and Kwarteng removed that cap to show that, um, you know, on whose side they were. Um, I think the main thing to note about the mini-budget is that what a strange title it is, mini-budget. This was a massive budget. This was a, this was a real uh, wrench at the steering wheel of the British economy. It was going to be a, a shock treatment, shock therapy for the British economy to get over our problems of low productivity and slow growth. And it was going to lead to um, 
massive enrichment all round as British industry was regalvanized and people began to invest again. Um, why mini budget? It, um, because if it had been a budget, just a budget, it would have had to be scrutinized under British law by the Office of Budget Responsibility, who would have done an academic uh, assessment of whether these massive tax cuts were affordable. And they'd have taken into consideration, for example, um, that British public debt was rapidly approaching a, a very difficult to sustain level. Over 100% of GDP, um, not as bad as Italy, but you know, quite unprecedented for decades by British standards. And that was unsurprising because it was after, after the COVID pandemic and um, you know, a lot of public money had, had gone into keeping people alive and um, sustaining um, some form of British economy during all the COVID lockdowns and so on. So the coffers were empty and in a sense, even worse, well, yes, even worse, was the fact that the whole public sphere in Britain, and I'm talking here about health services and education and policing and justice, the whole public sphere in Britain had for the last decade been, been starved of resources under the austerity programme, which the Conservatives brought in from 2010 in order to prepare, repair the previous hole in our in our national finances, which was caused by the great financial meltdown of 2008. So the cost of bailing out the banks um, had to be borne by the public services over a decade. And then we had the cost of um, uh, the costs incurred under COVID. And that again had to be had to be borne largely by um, keeping a keeping a boot on the on the on the money pipeline going into public services. Um, and if it had been a budget and not a mini budget, there would have been an official report pointing this out and perhaps saying in these circumstances, perhaps these tax cuts um, are not affordable and they're going to involve massive further borrowing by the Treasury. And what is that going to do to Britain's, um, Britain's credit ratings internationally? There may be a limit to what the market will be prepared to fund in terms of uh, allowing Britain to rack up further debt whilst the economic miracle takes place. Um, anyway, um, it really didn't take very long for the markets to make their views known on all this. Um, and you know, the, the pound crashed immediately. Um, within days, I think two or three days, the Bank of England had to do a multi-billion pound intervention to bail out pension funds, or rather to underpin, to guarantee pension funds, which had suddenly um, faced the most hideous economic situation with um, the money that they continually have to borrow off the money markets, um, suddenly costing twice what it had before and what they reckoned they could afford. Um, so the pension funds were in danger of collapse. The, um, the pound had collapsed. Um, and it really didn't take many days before um, before it became clear that a U-turn was necessary and that Truss and Quateng had tried to go too far too fast. And Truss sacked Quateng. He was... It's unsurprising and must have been very painful for her because these were ideological soulmates and old friends and political allies. But something had to give. 
if trust was going to survive, there needed to be something more than just a whoops, sorry, um, and uh, we'll uh, we'll reverse uh, most of these policies. Um, so Kwarteng was out, and in came the man who is still Chancellor of the Exchequer, a man called Jeremy Hunt, a more centrist figure and a more rational and stable figure, and he then put through his own um, budget within weeks after that. Um, whilst uh, I think Truss was still in, was she still? Yes, she was still in office, which basically uh, rolled back on all these wonderful um, uh, tax cuts in the mini budget. Um, but at this stage, the skids were pretty much under Truss, um, and there was huge dissatisfaction in the within the parliamentary Conservative Party. And before very long, the chairman of the backbench parliamentary committee was knocking on the door of number 10 and telling her, sorry, Liz, your position is no longer sustainable. You must resign. She did. And I wanted to follow up a little bit on um, what you talked about, especially the international impact here. So the UK is the world's sixth largest economy. And with the falling of the pound, especially the collapse of the pound, what impact did this po- these policies have on the wider world economy? Did we see this impact um, uh, shape up in some kind of form in the world? It was a very brief drama. I mean, the pound, as soon as um, Kwarteng had been sacked, which is a couple of weeks later, and Hunt reinstalled, then the pound was back to where it was before, and the the, the financial crisis was passed. Everybody knew that this, um, uh, what the military might call a negligent discharge, um, had been recognised as such and was uh, was going to be completely reversed. So I'm not sure that there would have been very much um, uh, wider global impact beyond um, a lot of money made by those who by currency speculators operating against the British pound. Um, so, I mean, and anyway, it was at a time when, uh, what else was going on last autumn? Oh, yes, um, Ukraine and energy costs going through the roof and, 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 and inflation taking off in the most uh, hideous fashion and its way towards double-digit figures. Um, so, whilst this little local difficulty in Britain was was a brief excitement, um, I think it destabilised things for for a couple of weeks, and after that, we uh, things restored themselves uh, internationally, um, pretty much to where they were before. Um, they hadn't, I'm afraid, restored themselves uh, in any very happy way within Britain, um, where we are sinking ever further into um, um, a situation which is increasingly shorthanded by columnists as, as broken Britain. Um, there's a huge wave now of public sector strikes. Um, our health services is deemed to be close to collapse. Um, the, uh, the rail network has more or less given up operating, certainly given up operating in any reliable way. The teachers are about to go out on strike. And etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. We are in a we're having a bad winter of it in Britain. I wanted to follow up on what you were saying on the last days of List Trust. So after a mere forty four days as Prime Minister, Trust resigned amidst low approval ratings. Was her choice to resign inevitable? Was there any chance for Trust to regain the confidence of the Parliament and the public at large? 
Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, after after sacking the uh, after sacking a chancellor and and appointing Hunt to reverse everything that she'd promised uh, for the last decade or two decades of her career, and to reverse everything she'd promised to the Tory Party faithful in the leadership election, I don't think you can do a U-turn like that without totally losing credibility. Uh, and worse, um, with the uh, with the Tory Parliamentary Party. Um, you mentioned the um, uh, Tory approval ratings in the country, which had gone through the floor. And the next election is probably less than two years away, next general election. And I think that um, an overwhelming uh, majority of the members of the parliamentary Tory party saw that if they were going to have any chance at all of preserving, uh, of getting themselves re-elected to parliament in a couple of years' time, trust had to go. Which is why I think the the final decisive move was taken when the um, the chairman of their backbench of the backbench um, members of parliament, um, traditionally known in the old days as a man in a grey suit, um, popped round to Downing Street and had a little chat and said, um, "Sorry, Liz, your time's up." As for the country, I mean. By the time Truss went, the the Labour Party had enjoyed an almost unprecedented lead in public opinion polling, which has settled down now uh, across the winter to a lead of uh, of roughly 20 percentage points of uh, Labour voting intentions over Tory voting intentions, which itself is um, huge um, and would would give, if carried through into the voting of a general election, give the give Labour um, in place, uh, reversing the um, very large majority that Boris Johnson secured for the Conservatives, it would reverse it into a very large majority for the Labour Party at the next election. Um, So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Rishi Sunak, who um, emerged victorious after the Conservatives held an expedited leadership election um, after Truss's resignation. So, Nick, what policies did Sunak propose um, this time around, and how did they differ from the first time that he ran? Gosh, it's now you've, you've trying to rack my brains about um, the exact sequence of events last year. The first time he ran must have been... Um, must have been against. Uh, well, hang on. Was the he ran against Boris? Oh, oh, you mean the time he ran against Boris Johnson versus Liz Truss? Yes, um, and um, basically he was he was doing a lot of the stuff um, of wooing the Conservative uh, membership. This, uh, the, which is the extreme wing of the of the Tory Party, and. He was signing up to the anti-immigration Rwanda policy. He was declaring that there would be um, no uh, uh, onshore wind. Um, this is a huge issue in Britain. Um, we've done one of the few things we've done rather well over the last decade is put a whole load of uh, wind turbines offshore in the North Sea and all around the coast of Britain. And have begun to generate vast number, vast amounts of of uh, when the wind blows, of nice sustainable electricity from them, and people want to put them on land as well. But the it's part of the um, the it's a Tory party uh, article of faith 
that wind turbines on land are blots on the landscape. Um, so are solar farms. They're blots on the landscape as well. So um, Sunak seems to have signed up or happily to all those and to other things like fracking, which Tories love. Um, but mainly he he was a sort of rather pallid version of Truss, a rather responsible version of Truss. I mean, I think he he campaigned on the idea that, yes, we have a productivity problem and a growth problem in Britain. And if only we could get the the economy growing again, then all good things would be possible in terms of improving those dire public services, but tax cuts at the same time. So what would that be great? But he did definitely sound more notes of caution in saying we can't just rush in and do this all at once, just like that, whoosh, bang. Um, and well, the Tory party uh, uh, selectorate did not want to hear that. So they voted for Truss, who was... Uh, saying no such thing. She was saying it can all be done immediately and must be done immediately. Um, I think I was slightly um, thrown by your initial question because I suppose Sunak did run for the for the succession to trust, but I don't think anybody much doubted that um, it was going to have to be him. Um, and indeed, the parliamentary party voted for him so overwhelmingly um, that that election was never taken to the Tories in the countryside to the membership. It was almost a coronation. It wasn't quite, but it was pretty much an acceptance that there was nowhere else to go apart from Sunak. Because here was a man who was not a lying charlatan like the penultimate prime minister, who was not a crazed ideologue like the one who'd just departed, um, but was seemed like a, a sensible person. Yes, um, he was a Tory. Yes, he'd been a Brexiteer, so that was a that was a tick in his box. Um, and of course, he was clever at money, um, a vast personal fortune, probably the best part of a billion pounds, um, a background in in finance, a background in um, tech. Um, so, if you if you badly needed to restore the Conservative Party's historic rec reputation for economic competence, then Sunak was the obvious choice. Um, and unsurprisingly, he immediately reappointed Jeremy Hunt as his, as his chancellor and has, and has stuck with the, um, with, the, with the policies that Hunt first brought in to reverse the mini-budget and um, adopt a, a much more cautious approach and say, yes, yes, um, we are a tax-cutting government, but we can't afford it just yet. So people must be patient until the national finances improve a bit. So that's roughly where he's been going since. One policy I might just mention, which I think is interesting, where, which, um, which is a noticeable departure from his two predecessors, is that he has taken a much more emollient um line with the European Union about the famous Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, I mean, I'll explain that to you if you want, but it's the, it's... Um, yeah, if you could explain briefly. That'd oh, be great. oh, Lord. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you'd say, oh, no, 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 no. I and all my... highly <laughs> familiar with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, Brexit was a disaster. A catastrophe. It was always going to be a disaster and catastrophe. It was only ever a, approved by a slim majority of the British people because they were lied to. Um, 
But one of the things that was obviously never going to work um, was was the whole Northern Ireland dimension of of, of Brexit. Here you have um, a a part of the Union of Great Britain, um, which is also part of the island of Ireland, which has been uh, the victim of um, of acute political tensions between the Catholic and Protestant populations, um, which has broken out into more or less overt civil war on many occasions during recent decades. Finally, 25 years ago, we had the Northern Ireland Peace Agreement, which um, brought the two confessions into um, a partnership arrangement to run the devolved government in Northern Ireland. Quite a lot of um, the money and the, uh, well, the administration is devolved to Northern Ireland. And it was a historic achievement by all parties concerned to get everybody to agree that you know the violence must come to an end and that there must be a partnership approach to running Northern Ireland. Um, but part of that must involve an openness to the... Um, to the Republic of Ireland, as uh, they have a legitimate place in all this. Um, there must be all sorts of um, Northern Irish dimensions, uh, of, of pan-Irish dimensions to the way Northern Ireland is run, um, which will make uh, the Catholics in Northern Ireland feel that their identity is better recognised than, than ultimate government from Westminster. Um, now, what on earth do you do if Britain leaves the European Union? The obvious, and particularly if it leaves the single market and the um, and the customs union, then there must be a border on the island of Ireland between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And everybody accepted from the start of the negotiations that this could not be allowed to happen because it was an absolutely surefire way to. Um, to play into the hands of the men of violence on both sides and get people blowing up customs posts and basically and destabilizing the Good Friday Peace Agreement in Northern Ireland and heading back towards near civil war-like conditions. So this was, you know, the, in some ways, one of the main problems about the Brexit negotiations, trying to find a way to fudge this issue. And what has actually been agreed is a border down the Irish Sea so that um, Northern Ireland is... Well, Northern Ireland gets the best of both worlds. It's still part of the UK's single market because it's part of the UK, but it's also allowed into the EU single market. So it can uh, trade without tariffs in both directions. Lucky Northern Ireland. Their economy is doing rather well as a consequence. But this sounds much too like um, pandering to the Europeans and the Southern Irish for the hardline Protestants in Northern Ireland, because part of the part of the the condition for Northern Ireland being able to be within both single markets, a sort of airlock between Britain and the EU in trade terms, is that the goods moving across the Irish Sea from Britain to Northern Ireland have to be monitored. Otherwise, it would be all too easy for a deluge of goods to be brought into the UK and shipped through Northern Ireland and into the single market in Europe without any monitoring on standards or or costs or, or competition or anything like that. So the Northern Ireland Protocol basically said there will be this, um, not exactly a border down the Irish Sea, but trade will be monitored and carefully controlled as it, as it moves across the Irish Sea. And this is something that the Northern Irish Protestants have just reflected, uh, have rejected flat out. They have, for the last six months, refused to cooperate in the government of Northern Ireland, in the devolved administration, and... Um, 
so it's a, it's it's a real problem. Um, but I think most people accept that the only way forward is to stick with the Northern Ireland Protocol, but make it as user-friendly as possible, as inconspicuous, as painless as possible. And the EU have um, evidently prepared to collaborate on that. It doesn't meet the ideological objections to having someone else monitoring our trade in the UK, but, well, tough. Um, if people wanted Brexit and the Northern, the, the Northern Irish Protestants wanted Brexit, this, I'm afraid, is a consequence of, of, of that decision. Anyway, um, uh, I mentioned earlier, I think, that Truss um, was sponsoring legislation, which is still, I think, you know, somewhere waiting um, it, to move through the Houses of Parliament, sponsored legislation to satisfy the hardliners and say, well, no, we'll tear up the Northern Ireland Protocol. And what's more, we can say, we'll, we'll just... Um, it's part of an international treaty we've signed, we've debated it in Parliament, we've ratified it, it doesn't suit us, we'll tear it up. Now, this is just not the way that responsible nations behave in relation to their international treaty commitments. Um, and Sunak knows that, and he is evidently looking to try to sort out something in a much more cooperative way with the EU in Brussels, which will allow which will allow the Northern Ireland Protocol to remain unaltered and untrashed by unilateral British action, but to be operated in such a way that no reasonable person could really object to its impact on the ground. Whether that uh, will satisfy the Northern Ireland, um, the Northern Ireland Unionists, the the hardline Protestants remains to be seen. Of course, uh, this shift of policy on Northern Ireland has angered quite a lot of people uh, in the Tory party. So Sunak has a problem there and he has to feed them a lot of other red meat. So he's doing stuff like um, pushing through more anti-strike legislation, which is um, much appreciated by union bashers, um, pushing through uh, anti-protest legislation, um, to give the police more powers to make sure that nobody can create disturbances on British streets, pushing through legislation which uh, rules out a public interest defence when journalists um, uh, publish leaks from official sources, and all sorts of right-wing stuff which, is, um, which, which pleases the right-wing of his party. But he still has a, has a, a continuing problem with the right-wing of his party who, who do not like what he's trying to do to soften the edges of Brexit and get the Northern Ireland Protocol through and solve the Irish problem that way. And with the changes enacted by Sunak's policies, has the British economy improved since his election? And what about the public's view on the Tory party? Um, as I said earlier, the, the economy stabilised, or at least the fiscal situation, I think that's what we're talking about, whether you know whether we can borrow money internationally at reasonable rates, the fiscal situation stabilised very rapidly after the trust U-turn and the, then her demise and replacement by Sunak. Sunak is seen as a, internationally, I think, as a safe pair of hands in that sort of regard. Um, what, of course, you're left with is the fact that the, the British economy is very sick. Um, it has, if you look at most international league tables, you'll see that we've got, you know, the, amongst the slowest recoveries from the pandemic, we've got uh, a higher rate of inflation than practically everybody 
it's just, I think, topped out at about 11% and looks as though it can start drifting down now. But it's been it's been horrendous in terms of what has happened to the cost of living over the autumn in Britain. Um, growth, productivity on the floor still and the, the continuing dilemma. Um, uh, so the, the economy is in a very bad way, um, which is why, of course, um, when increasingly the the public sector, those who work in the public sector, and we're talking, I don't know, I don't know what we're talking, maybe 10 million people in the UK. By the time you've got the whole of the health service in there, social service, policing, justice, um, education, um, all of these uh, constituencies have been, had their their real standard of living eroded ever since 2008 because after the Great Crash, fiscal stability in Britain was to be restored by reining back on public sector expenditure and public sector salaries. So all these people have been getting poorer for a decade, and now they're being offered or have been offered recently uh, pay rises of 2 or 3% um, when inflation has been muscling up to 11%, and people have had enough. Um, so the country is now riven by strikes. Um, and we are quite close to, it's so hard to predict, isn't it? I mean, on the 1st of February, there will be a national day of action by pretty much all the unions involved, and the country will come to a standstill that day, and, you know, the ambulance service has reached a point, hospitals are are choked up now. The health, health service is has 7 million people in the queue for routine surgeries like knees and cataracts. 7 million people waiting for that. If you fall dangerously ill, you can, you can try to get to your general practitioner, your gateway to the health service, but people have given up on trying to get GP appointments, so they ring 999 for the ambulance service to take them to A&E. Now the ambulances are unable to discharge their cargoes of sick people at hospitals into the A&E departments because the A&E departments are jammed up. And the A&E departments are jammed up with people on gurneys and corridors because they can't move people into beds in the hospital because there aren't enough proper ward beds. And because so many of the ward beds that we have in hospitals are blocked by a very large population of people who, old people typically, who are well enough to go home, but there's nowhere for them to go because social care, that business of you know, providing a helping hand to old people living in their own homes or care homes or respite homes or whatever it may be, the provision for that has fallen off so sharply that there just aren't enough spaces and care packages and enough people who are prepared to work in those because the... It's a sort of it's a vicious circle. This isn't it. The less money there is, um, there are one hundred and thirty thousand vacancies in the in the health services at the moment because people say that the pay is not good enough. Why should I take on the responsibilities of acting as a nurse and uh, particularly when I've got good qualifications and I'm paid a pittance when I can actually earn more by going and stacking shelves at a supermarket? So. We're we're in a very parlous condition at the moment, and it would be interesting to see 
what happens in the next two or three months. What's the Sunak government have done so far is say, we're terribly sorry about this, and we do understand, and we get it. That's Sunak's great phrase. I get it, I get it, I understand. But unfortunately, there isn't any more money. Any further pay rises for public sector workers are unaffordable. Um, well, there aren't any... Um, there isn't any more money unless you choose to raise taxes elsewhere. And there are plenty of other places they could look for tax raising, but naturally they don't want to do that. And um, so we have a bit of a deadlock at the moment. I think it will be resolved by the government quietly backing down and having to um, having to raise the payoff as it's made to public sector workers. And we'll probably fudge our way through it that way. With the uh, dissatisfaction with the Tory government, um, and the rising popularity of the opposition party, uh, we're still left with the fact that general elections are two years away. So do you think there is a chance that Labour might get its wish of a early snap general election? Well, not if the current government has anything to do with it. Um, because as far as I can see, the Sunak strategy is to say is basically to play for time. Um, they know that if they went to the polls in a couple of months' time, they would be slaughtered. Um, but who knows what can happen in another two years if they can put it off that long? Um, you know, something may turn up. So I think basically the government's strategy is something may turn up. Um, you know, they can say, well, inflation's going to come down globally. That's going to be a good thing. That's going to make things easier. Um, Labour would love an election uh, tomorrow. Um, a majority of the British people wanted an election after trust because it doesn't seem terribly democratic to keep on getting um, prime ministers um, presented to us by the Tory party who turn out to be manifestly unfit for office. Um, but I don't... It, it all depends what happens in the next two two, three, four months on the situation of industrial relations and the um, and the current state of, I don't think it is too it, an exaggeration to say, I think the word collapse of various aspects of the public services and crisis in other various aspects of the public services, um, it depends how that goes. If the if the government strategy of playing for time and hoping that the spring comes and the sun shines and everybody feels a bit happier and inflation goes down and maybe energy prices go down and um, that they'll be able to last out for a couple of years, if not, then um, then as the crisis deepens, so will the um, so will the factionalism on the Tory backbenches because the Conservative Party is now an extremely um, riven, factionalised party after the last few years. I mean, there's even, heaven help us, a, a caucus who are calling for the return of Boris Johnson. So with that sort of stuff going on in the background, it's really very difficult to tell when um, the parliamentary arithmetic may shift um, or when levels of civil disobedience, civil breakdown um, might lead to um, what would have to be, I guess, a vote of no confidence in the government and then a general election. Um, it's not easy to get rid of a sitting government. It's easier to get rid of a sitting uh, a sitting prime minister, it seems. Um, you can knife them from behind, but getting rid of a, a sitting government 
from in front or from without Parliament is is a very difficult thing to do. But um, if the general situation in the country um, continues to deteriorate, then the world may come to realise that there's nothing we can do but have a general election and, and get a get a different government into power in the form of the Labour Party. You're mentioning how it's easy to get rid of prime ministers, and indeed the Conservatives have had five different prime ministers in the last six years. So do you think this is a problem of the Conservative Party, or do you think this says something about the British polit- about British politics more fundamentally? It seems to be a problem, a problem of both parties, that they have um, internal party electoral systems which um, uh, can very easily place uh, at the head of their parties people who are manifestly unsuitable to be there, basically because they're extremists, because they get there by pandering to the extremes of the parties. And Labour suffered just the same when they had Jeremy Corbyn, um, the predecessor of the current leader, um, who fought two elections against Theresa May in 2017 and 2019 and lost both because in the eyes of the wider public, away from the extreme left party faithful, he was manifestly unfit to run the country. Um, and he would have been. Um, so both parties have that problem with their internal selection systems. Um it is a problem, I think, with British politics that um, we have this first-past-the-post electoral system. Of course, you do in the States as well, but we have more parties. So, you know, we have a substantial Liberal Democrat Party, you have a substantial Green Party, we have um, a big phalanx of Scottish National MPs in the House of Parliament as well. And all of these um you could almost say that they that they end up being wasted votes because the first past the post system means that you can get a majority government of Tories or of Labour on not much more than thirty percent of the popular vote. So I think we badly need to change for a proportional representation systems such as in almost every country in Europe, um, which means that you govern if not in coalition, at least with some understanding of one or two other parties, um, which tends to act as a, a useful restraint on the more extreme um, wings of your own party. More generally, um, you know, Brexit has, has... It's been a poison to British politics. It has... Um, I'm not sure whether it was cause or effect, really. But, um, you know, since 20, 2016 was the start of the era when politicians simply lie to people. Um, politicians have always um, um, groomed the truth in their own interests for as long as I've been interested in political life. Um, the, the era of the outright, barefaced, uh, publicly repeated lie um, is something that I think has only come in in the last six years. Possibly you've seen something similar in um, in the United States. Um, along with that has been the rise of, um, has, has been the extraordinary polarization of the country into leave and remain, although that is, um, that is getting less acute as more and more of the, even people who voted leave are beginning to accept that actually that was a mistake. 
polling now says that um, you know 57% of the British population are ready to say, um, yeah, it was a mistake to vote for Brexit. Um, but what has what is irreversible, of course, is the huge economic damage that's been done to Britain, um, the huge damage that has been done to Britain's international reputation. Um, I think you know it. Um, you know, go back ten years, and people would have said, "Oh, Britain. Well, whatever else, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty sort of stable, down to earth country. British people, lots of common sense, pragmatic. That was a word that was widely used in relation to the British." Um, often linked, if you were French, with saying pragmatic to the point of perfidy. Um, but anyway, not a not a nation of extremes, not a nation of ideology. And that reputation, well, it turns out that we, we can be perfectly capable of extremes and ideology, or at least some of us can. Um, so I think we are, we are poorer, we are weaker. Our voice uh, in international affairs has been largely muffled. Um, all the debates going on at the moment, very important debates between America and Europe on the impact of your Inflation Reduction Act and the increasing protectionism that you're bringing into um, uh, your, your president is, is implementing in order to protect US jobs and US industry. And Europe is sitting there wondering whether it um, can go along with this or whether it needs to retaliate with a similar program of its own and what the effect on international trade would be and blah, and blah. Um, these are no easy issues to deal with. But uh, no one is asking Britain. Um, America and the US will hopefully work out something that suits both parties so that the Western world is not um, it doesn't find itself uh, conducting an internal economic civil war at the time when we're trying to conduct a, a hot war against Putin. Um, but uh, whatever, whatever Europe, whatever Brussels and Washington come up with, that is what London will have to suck up. Um, and uh, so we, we've lost our voice in international affairs very largely. People listen to us on Ukraine, um, I'm glad to say, uh, but that's about it. And... Um, and we have this um, terribly depressed national policy, which feels that politicians are no longer to be trusted, that um, at least you could trust the uh, Conservatives to be competent on money. Maybe they were the party of the rich, but at least they were competent. And now people don't believe that anymore. Um, we're having a bad time. But um, like all bad times, it will, um, it will move through in... Uh, two, three, four years' time. I think it's important to have an early change of government to a, a Labour government. And uh, things will look up again and we will, um, our economy will slowly begin to pick itself up off the floor. And um, and we will begin to feel a bit better about ourselves. Hopefully. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. It was such an insightful discussion. It, well, it's been absolutely my pleasure. And um it's been helpful to me to try to remember some of this uh, amazing kaleidoscope of events that happened in the last six months. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.